Hello! What you're about to hear is not actually an episode of Cut to Black, a podcast about how we experience television. It's an episode of my other podcast, The Boiled Leather Audio Hour, in which my co-host Gretchen Felker-Martin and I take a wide survey of the new golden age of television, from the canonical shows to our own personal favorites. This is part one of a two-part discussion. We thought you would like it. We thought it would be a good introduction to our own podcast, which will focus a little bit more particularly on individual items of note throughout the history of television. So, I hope you enjoy it, and happy listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a television critic for such publications as the Rolling the Rolling Stone. Sure, like you're on the cover of the Rolling Stone. That works. The New York Times, Vulture, and Decider. And joining me today is not my illustrious co-host, traditionally speaking, Stefan. This is a first ever Sean solo episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. Although I'm not really riding solo. Joining me is my very special guest, critic, writer, novelist, Gretchen Felker-Martin. Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sean. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So uh, why don't you tell the nice people who you are and what you do? Um, So I've been a professional TV critic for, I think, the past four years. Um, And I'm also a horror novelist. Uh, My first book is coming out next year. So yeah, I'm very, very excited to talk about television with you. Yes, because that's our subject for today, is television. Specifically, whatever you would like to call the still ongoing television boom. Right, The new golden age of TV. Yes, the new golden age of television, prestige TV, peak TV, all that kind of stuff. Um, Because I think both of us have felt like I would guess I would say out of step with mainline television criticism, at least as far as the, the conventional wisdom tends to coagulate around shows. So this is sort of our attempt to, to start a little fresh, I guess. Although of course um, in discussing our favorite shows, I think we'll have a lot in common with a lot of people because certain shows, it's a little like the Beatles, like, Right. They're just really good. That's why Some, everyone says someone they're good. is actually doing it best. Yes, yes, exactly. Um so I guess why don't we start with your favorite show and I think probably the most important show in this whole thing, which is The Sopranos. Yes. Sopranos is my favorite show of all time, um, which is true for a lot of people for a great many reasons. 
because yes. it's, it's pretty bottomlessly rich. Um, and to my mind, I was just talking about this earlier with a friend. The most important thing that the Sopranos does, aside from being just astonishing on every technical and creative level, is cast normal people. And I think that's the reason that it has gone largely unrivaled among like follow-up family dramas is that there's a level of engagement you can achieve with people like James, James Gandolfini and, you know, Joe Pentoliano and all these odd looking middle-aged Italian guys. And they're, you know, sort of trashy chic wives and, and just this, enormous roster of very real looking people who you have absolutely met at backyard barbecues in your own life. (laughs) And that, that is not touchable by catalog people from, you know, Riverdale or whatever. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's, um, the Sopranos has that going for it. I think a lot of subsequent shows that you and I have both responded to very favorably do have that going for maybe not a lot, but certainly like the young Pope and the new Pope. I wrote an essay for the outline on the faces right? and how just the variety of human beings that are in that show enhances the, the, the dramatic quality of it. Yeah. The two um, that spring immediately to mind are, are well taken as a whole, the young Pope and the new Pope and then Deadwood. Deadwood. That was my next one. Yep. yep. Yeah. you know, has disabled actors and actors of color and fat actors. And I think has, has maybe a higher ratio of conventionally attractive people than the Sopranos does, as does the young Pope, which definitely gets less interesting when you move into the women that it chooses to feature. Mm -hmm. Um, But does definitely have some of the best, the best faces on television and voices too. (sighs) Um, I could I could listen to Silvio Orlando read the phone book. Voices are so important, and is it crazy to say that nobody talks about them? But nobody talks about them. No one does. I remember uh, this was. I don't even know if we were friends at this point, but you wrote a piece on Boardwalk Empire and all the different, extremely distinct voices of its characters that really like blew my hair back. I was like, wow, I've never even thought about this shit. Yeah, that was always like really one of the consummate pleasures of watching that show for me. Was oh, hearing yeah. Steven Root or Bobby Cannavale or Jack Houston. I mean, just just a huge gamut of people with just Paul Sparks. Um, just interesting voices to listen to. And, and, and that was also something that I really loved about Downton Abbey, yes. which I think you know, which I think kind of fell apart after two of the main characters left, which is unfortunate. I feel like they should have just figured out a way to end the show, but you know, the, the spice must flow, I guess. <laughs> yeah. but it was just, I mean, I just loved listening to those people.
variety of English accents and how mellifluous some of it was. It was just yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like um, an English pastoral taking of Pelham one two three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> you know you've got Robert Shaw and Walter Matthau and all those all those good New York boys all spitting different boroughs. Yep. I mean, that's one of the things I like about The Sopranos, too. I mean, it takes place in New Jersey, and I was born and raised and continue to live on Long Island, so it, it's slightly different. We right. like Billy Joel, and they like Bruce Springsteen. It's the main, <laughs> you know, denominational difference. But, you know, there, there was something, I think, important about how distinct the accents were and really convincing, you know? Yeah. I mean, they sounded like people I know not all of them. And some of them took it to like an, ex- like to a linguistic extreme. Like I'm thinking about how Ralphie pronounces the word whore. <laughs> oh my God. She was yeah, a whore. Uh, whore. It's like Al Pacino. Right. Um, he's, he's like hollering back down his own throat. Right. But I mean, it makes sense for that character to make a nonsense word of that word because he doesn't sure. see people who are like that as people anyway. Right, you know, so. it's it's like Adriana mutilating Christopher's name into seventeen syllables. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's a uh, that's what got her the role, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? Just yeah. how she's been Christopher? Yeah, you've written really beautifully about the Sopranos and and this aspect of it, the the variety in the casting and the reality in the casting that a lot of shows don't share with it, and Adriana. Um, Drea de Mateo is kind of the exception that proves the rule, isn't she? Because yeah. like her beauty is her really sole currency in this world. Exactly. So- and you see how intensely she acts out of fear to cultivate and preserve it. Yes. You know, yeah. one of the one of the earliest times in the show that we spend a little time alone with her, she's talking about how she doesn't want to wind up like Carmela Soprano going to the gym every day with just her stretch marks on her kids. Uh, and it's, it's like crushing. Like, yeah. you know, she's, she has this dream that what she'll be young forever. It's like, she's so scared. She can't look ahead. And you just, I think that, I think it has more impact because she's the only person. Absolutely. Like that. Like I interviewed her at the, um, during the show at one point in person for one of my old jobs. And, you know, she just like a lot of attract professionally attractive people. It was just mind blowing how good looking she was. <laughs> like, like it was just like, you know, you felt like a Tex Avery wolf, you know? Um, she, but like it, 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 the point is that it stands out. And I think with a lot of the shows that mean something to me, you need uh, pieces that don't fit, yeah. sort of, uh, if that makes sense. You need to feel some kind of tension between the parts, or else it's not, or else it's just kind of blah to me. Right. Well, so much of the appeal of The Sopranos is how unsustainable all these different self images and lives are operating mm. next to each other. Like, the things that Adriana is and that everyone values about her are also the reason that they have no respect for her. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's a show where everyone's self image is so fragile. 
you know, so much of the show's conflict is driven by overheard insults and just like petty little things. It's really, you know, like children fighting. I, I think the venality of it uh, is something that really kicks off. And I think the show really becomes itself in an episode called University. Yeah, we completely um, agree here. That's yeah. that, To me, that's the most important episode of The Sopranos. Absolutely. it's it's To me, it is what the bells is to Game of Thrones, really. Yeah. You get people who don't feel that way which is a little odd to me. You get people who say it was the episode called college, which this sort of, you know, rhymed with deliberately. Um, That was back in the first season. You know, I mean, it's the Sopranos. It's a great episode of television. It's very thoughtful, but in terms of what it challenges the viewer to do, they're not on the same plane of existence. Yeah. Cause the university um, and you see this a lot with mob stuff, I think. People will make a mafia movie or a mafia television show. And whether because of critical response or just a, a tendency that they're noticing in the audience towards just kind of enjoying the antics, for lack of a better word, of the of the mafiosi, um, they will then go and make a much meaner thing. So like... You know, the parallel I'm thinking between college from season one and university from season three and the difference there is Goodfellas and Casino. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Like Casino is kind of Martin Scorsese's response video to his own film and the reaction to it. Right, in in the the same way that the Irishman rhymes with Casino. Bingo. And like, I remember talking about this in film class in college and saying like, just take how you meet Joe Pesci in these two movies and in Joe Pesci's first scene in Goodfellas, it's the famous, what's so funny about me? Am I a clown you? Do I amuse you? Yeah. Which winds up being a joke. He's playing a prank on his friend. The first Joe Pesci scene in Casino, a random guy is rude to Robert De Niro's character. So Joe Pesci's character grabs a pen and stabs him in the neck repeatedly with a pen. (laughs) Like that's your, that that's the difference there. Like, Casino is really like, no, these are terrible people. These are frightening monsters. Right. And really and don't want to deal with. Not only right? are they terrible, but their, their sort of pitiable stupidity and smallness only makes it more horrifying. You know, yes. like the whole movie wraps up in that incredible voiceover from, from Ace, from Robert De Niro, where he just doesn't understand anything. He's learned nothing, and he, yeah. he's just mildly irritated at being back where he started. Yeah, it's it's. I love that character so much, Ace, Roth, Ace Rothstein. I just think there's so much going on with with just uh, kind of creating this character whose thing is like he's right. He wants to be right. Mm-hmm. He's good at being right. He's bad at being anything else. <laughs> yes. So like to the extent that your relationship with him moves into on the X axis, it's no longer like, is he right? Is he not right? To the extent that's irrelevant. Like let's say you're in, you're in a marriage with him and you're supposed to be in some sort of partnership. Like right. you're fucked. You're fucked. Yeah, Cause that's absolutely. just not how he operates. And you know, Sharon Stone as as ginger, his wife is like the heart of the film and his, his total indifference to her which takes the form of this brutal, callous covetousness says all you need to know about the man. Yeah. 
I, I love, I love stone in that movie. I love her performance. I love God, her relationship with James Woods's character. James Woods is playing himself here. <laughs> <laughs> As this, like, you know, shitty small time slime ball um, who has pimped her out and who she just cannot get over is so sad. And of course that's, you know, eventually the, the grown up version of that is what kills her. Yeah. Man though, you know what I never see anyone talk about Hmm? is how incredibly tender and moving his monologue to her on her wedding night is when he talks about the first time he saw her and then you cut over to his side of the phone and he's like doing coke with some other woman. (laughs) I think it's appropriate for us to be talking about Scorsese because that was kind of the rap on the Sopranos to the extent that there was ever a negative response to it. It was that it was like, you know, dime store Scorsese that it was just kind of redoing Goodfellas. And like, and of course it, it moves past Goodfellas. Yeah. And university is where it really puts the final nail on that coffin. Yeah, I mean, it it invited the comparisons for sure. It was like kind of funny and fast moving and it had a ton of the same actors. Mm -hmm. And in Christopher's case, there was like an explicit homage to Michael Imperioli's character where he got shot in the foot and did fellas. Right, and then he shoots someone in the foot in The Sopranos and the guy goes, you shot me in the foot and he goes, it happens. (laughs) Yeah. So they weren't weren't ducking this, you know, Mm -hmm. they were kind of inviting it, but that's fine because- as did Scorsese himself in his own body of work, The Sopranos responded to Goodfellas and then sort of transcended Goodfellas, as much as I love Goodfellas, which is yes. a lot. I do really love Goodfellas. It just, you know, it's it's three hours long. It doesn't have the space that The Sopranos does. Right. And that's another thing that I love about The Sopranos and that I love, we're going to have to start talking about other shows than The Sopranos at some point. Um, but one thing I have always adored and I've really taken it to really the beating heart of my entire response to narrative fiction is how there was no minor character on the Sopranos at any, at a moment's notice, they could take a background character and make them vitally important and, and alive in ways that you'd never seen before. Like I'm obviously thinking here about Ginny Sacramone, who was the wife of a rival mob boss, Johnny Sack. And, has a binge eating disorder and there's this unfucking real scene. I remember just uh, like, just it was, it floored me that they took this character who was, pardon me. I said, I broke down crying the first time I saw it. Yeah. It's, it's unreal where he returns home unexpectedly and catches her with her stash of junk food. And, you know, she, they're both like on the verge of, they're both like over the verge of tears and he's upset at her for lying to him because he doesn't he doesn't think any less of her for her weight, despite the fact that she's and she's convinced that he must because of the values that all of the men around him have. Right. And he and really definitively does not care to the point where he will explicitly say so to other men he knows judge and ridicule him for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how she's Rubenesque, right? Right. Um, he's the only one, I think, uh with no gumad. Yes, yeah. And it's like he was he was a minor character. He was a nothing. He was a one-dimensional antagonist. And she if he was a nothing, then she was less than a nothing because she was just like a person in the family of the one-dimensional antagonist. Right. And what they were able to do there 
oh, it's like alchemy. I just and so whenever I talk about um, styrofoam packing peanuts characters, characters who exist to get the plot from point A to point B, or the main characters from point A to point B, this is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There's always you can always do more if you want. Yes. And, and so why not? Why not do more with them? Why not? Like. I'm not saying every you don't have to not every character becomes the protagonist of the story but the beautiful thing about the sopranos is that you just you just never knew yeah. and, and there was a richness to it that you couldn't get any other way and it enabled them to do other things too like the fact that they paid attention to their minor characters enabled them to like I'm thinking of Ralph Cifaretto's introduction which is he has no introduction right he just shows up and and you're all like okay I guess this is Ralph Yep. And like, you can do that because it's trained you to see minor characters as like potential vectors for the story. And here again, I think the distinct nature of every actor's face is such a boon to the show because it's, you know, it's like a, like a cartoon. You immediately recognize them as distinct people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You had mentioned the bells in game of thrones, which I I think is a, a natural next step. Okay. Not that like, I don't want to talk about the Sopranos for another two hours. (laughs) Although, you know, I feel actually that, that maybe your favorite show would be, would be a good segue. I know that you think of twin peaks as the greatest TV show ever made which yeah. is an extremely valid opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so to, to talk about it in the terms that we've already established with The Sopranos, obviously Twin Peaks has, let's say, 50% of the cast are among the most beautiful people on Earth. Right. Right. The most traditionally, conventionally beautiful people on Earth. Kyle MacLachlan, Majin Amick, uh, Cheryl Lee, Sherilyn Fenn. It's kind of ridiculous. And that's kind of Lynch's thing, right? Like he, like he, he has in one hand, he has like these movie stars, these matinee idols that he adores because he loves Hollywood glamour. That's a thing for him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have the Jack Nances of the world and the right. Harry Stantons of the world and the Frank Silva's of the world, for Christ's sake, the people who um, are not conventionally beautiful. Usually age has something to do with it. And I think, one of the reasons that I rate Twin Peaks so highly, like, let me put it this way. Prior to Twin Peaks, the return, the third season that aired on Showtime a few years ago, Twin Peaks was my second place show behind The Sopranos. It was the return that really sealed it for me. Um, and I, I, I can totally understand why. I mean, that's one of the most astonishing feats in modern television to come back after this 25 year hiatus and, God, I mean, just the faces 
just the yes. way that all of those faces had changed and the the closeness of death to that show. I mean, to have actors on camera who are, are dying in real life. Yeah, it became among all the other things it is about suburbia or small towns or um, the exploitation of women or, uh, you know, just this sort of exploration of the supernatural, which I think is as effective as anything I've ever seen in the horror genre. It did wind up becoming this meditation on aging. Like I am looking up right now behind me on the wall in our living room. We have two prints by Megan Garvey, who was in, our book mirror mirror Two, that uh, my partner Graffer and I edited and that you wrote the intro to of big Ed Hurley, uh, just sitting there eating his soup, which you watch in the show for about two to three minutes. I think I'm just like smiling in total calm contentment, thinking about it. Yes. Yes. And the other one is of Sarah Palmer, the mother of the uh, slain homecoming queen, Laura Palmer smoking a cigarette at a bar where unusual things are about to take place. Grace Um, Zabriskie, I mean, from the moment that she appears in the pilot, she looks like someone told her something so horrible that she's been having an expression about it for the rest of her life, and it just keeps getting deeper into her. Yeah. Because that's the thing about Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is about a murdered, beautiful girl and it never lets you forget that. It never lets you fetishize Laura Palmer. Despite, I mean, despite the fact that you're when you're introduced to her as a person, she's they have to unwrap plastic to get to her, right? Like, right, it's, like a doll. yeah, exactly. But as the word travels that she's dead in the pilot episode from 1990, first you just see a random kid who you never see again run through a courtyard screaming and crying. And then you watch as her classmates turn and look at her desk, which is empty. And, and what, and you, you watch them realize what that means. I don't know. I think there's a Lynch being who he is. I think people overlook how humane his work is. And I think that's him at his most humane. And I, I think it's a tone that he focused on in the in the prequel film Firewalk with Me, which I kind of consider part and parcel of Twin Peaks. And I think he definitely leaned on very heavily in in the third season. But these aren't, yeah, these aren't just abstract concepts to him. These murder victims, like you're 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 removing someone from the world, right? And that's and it's irrevocable. Right. I think we've both said versions of this at at one time or another, but I mean, in a way, the whole show is just sounding the cave of where Laura used to be. Yeah. Um, And no other murder mystery has ever once done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is kind of astonishing when you pause and think about it. And to have all that, and then to also pull off something like episode eight of season three, which to me is the best television television episode of all time, and there are episodes that I fucking love that are not that episode, and still I don't I don't hesitate. I think to see that episode and to connect 
the smallest acts of interpersonal and familial cruelty with the most devastating rending of the social fabric of humanity. I mean, I, in some ways, I don't feel like I've recovered from watching that episode. Yeah. Like for, for those who haven't seen it, I won't really ruin anything for you, but um, it, it depicts the first atomic explosion and then also does a whole bunch of other things that are pretty scary. And the, the, the it makes ex- explicit the connection between this horrific crime against the world that was the creation of the atomic bomb and all of the both the petty interpersonal shit and then the spooky supernatural shit that has gone down really ever since it's pretty fucking bold to concretize something that we really only think about in the abstract, particularly in this country. That's an achievement. I feel, I feel like my understanding of war was fundamentally altered by seeing that episode. Mm -hmm. I feel like hand in hand with that, my understanding of abuse changed too. And really when it, when it comes to abuse and cycles of abuse, there is nothing like Twin Peaks. Oh my God. Yeah. What I always say to people when I talk about fire walk with me Mm -hmm. is that after you watch it, you're going to feel like your whole skin has been peeled off and everything is, is just agonizing. Yeah. (sighs) Cheryl Lee's performance in that is to me, it's Robert. It's, 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 untouchable particularly when she confronts the reality of her abuser um i just i'm at a loss for words yeah that's it's one of the most harrowing moments in in film um it's, it's it's why not to get pissy but it's why i have zero time for people who think lynch is glib or uh bad I have no interest in that. I, like I, I just fuck you, honestly. Fuck you if you think that. <laughs> I, I, I don't give a damn. Um, which is uh, an a viewpoint that I'm I'm trying out a lot more when I see something that is just so fucking lobotomized and irony poisoned that I can't even integrate it into my experience of the world. Is just oh well, who the fuck cares? It's bottomless. Just turn your turn your back. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off is a pretty useful fuck out of here that's really what it is fuck, fuck out of here eat shit whatever just like <laughs> anything that brings the door down um oh man you know it's it's like uh when people don't like paul verhaven and they start to try and explain it to me i'm just like i don't give a shit right he's amazing and if you don't see it i don't really want to talk about it with you yeah I mean, I think that's kind of the, the perils of, of criticism is that you're forced to engage with the the conversation. And a lot of times, like, you have no interest in the conversation. And I'm, here I'm not even claiming that I'm right, although I am. But, but you know what I mean? Like, sometimes you just, it's not worth engaging. Well, sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of like this, Hydra headed example of both sides ism. 
not not all takes are created equal. <laughs> no, very much so. And I feel like I would imagine listeners to this podcast can relate to the sentiment because of the reaction to the finale of Game of Thrones. Right. Um, Which might might be the single most dispiriting and frustrating cultural wave of media engagement that I have ever seen. Yeah, I, I, I said something similar. And I, I, you know, upon further review, I think the play stands. The dumbest arts discourse that I can remember. Yeah, just this years and years of accumulated bad faith and wild supposition, and it was just a, a bizarre total animosity for the the showrunners. That's one of the weirdest phenomena I have ever fucking seen. I just have no time for it. I I don't. <sighs> It's not that I do not care about the human lives moving behind the scenes of the show, but if they are content to not talk about it or have nothing to say, I don't see why the rest of us should venture an opinion. I mean, you know, I, I see so much that is is nominally in defense of so many of the younger women on that show who don't seem to have anything to say about it themselves. <laughs> right. Right. Other than like, wow, what a cool thing that changed my whole life and gave me a career. <laughs> yeah. Man, um, it really is weird. And I just don't give a damn. <laughs> no. Yeah. You have to kind of let it go at a certain point, which sucks because like it became the, the conventional wisdom that these are two idiot bros who like, stumbled onto a good thing and it's like y'all fucking watched it yeah so you know and i mean there there are certainly cracks in game of thrones um it's not the show that the sopranos or twin peaks is Um, yeah and and there is a certain amount of apples to oranges there but it's in their lineage. So I I think a comparison is excusable, but in terms of the sheer scale of something on television, how you can look at the fantasy spectacle that game of Thrones throws on the screen and not just be totally blown away. It's truly beyond me. I mean, I I remember, some headline about the battle of the bastards that used that overhead shot of the Northern army being penned in and slowly butchered against a mountain of their own dead and said, game of Thrones stages a spectacular battle, but to what end? Yes. (laughs) And it it was, 
the spectacular watch, battle oh, is the end. God damn it! Watch what's in front of you. The the creators are talking to you. They made a whole show to talk to you. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. if you can't if you can't watch it and react to what is on screen in front of you, then you've failed the most basic level of media literacy. Yeah, I mean, I I, I rank Game of Thrones really high. I think all told. I would too. I think it's I think it's a benchmark in television. Yeah, and I Uh, think those, um, you know, just I think those battle episodes, um, serve like you know they're kind of they kind of metonymize the whole experience, right? Like, yeah, it's just scale means something, or it should. Yes, you know, I think there's been a scale, um, inflation because of a phenomenon that uh. The showrunner, the frequent showrunner and writer Damon Lindelof described in a really revealing piece on Vulture several years ago, where he was like, "Oh, there's just kind of there's just been stakes inflation in 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 blockbusters. So like, it's no longer enough for someone to blow up an apartment building or hijack a subway. You have to destroy a city, or you have to destroy the whole planet, or you have to destroy the whole universe." And like he talks about how he's just kind of given into this in his work writing blockbuster movies which thankfully is not the only work that he did you know so i think there's a segment of the audience that just receives something like the battle of the bastards or blackwater or the watchers on the wall um you know or the attack on the ba- the lannister baggage train by the dothraki and the dragon and just is like yeah okay fine is where does this rank on a scale of one to avengers endgame and it's like that's really depressing to me because yeah. Spectacle can mean something. Yes. But and it, 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 and it it does so frequently in Game of Thrones. I one of the most indelible images in fantasy film for the past decade, more maybe, is uh the, the wildfire detonating in Blackwater yeah. Bay. Yep. Yeah. And everyone that. just staring at it like it's you know, like it's the Trinity test. I remember that so vividly. Because obviously, if you've read the books, which you wonderful people have, you have uh, a pretty solid picture of the Battle of the Blackwater uh, in your mind. And you, you at this point are waiting for the show to live up to it because this is going to be the first major battle that the show has ever actually shown. Right. Because it kind of found ways around it during the first season through a combination of budgetary limitations and problems with the weather. But this time you're actually getting what you're supposed to be getting. And I remember that wildfire explosion being, I mean, it felt like an order of magnitude bigger than I thought it would be. Yeah. Like it was, I was, I was flabbergasted because they, they took something that I thought I had a handle on from the books that I thought I had imagined. And it, it made it, much bigger it was thrilling it's thrilling to experience that it's really breathtaking and i i think that the show does that successfully so many times in so many different interesting ways and you know the other the other hallmark of blackwater that carries forward is the people who are not fighting Mm -hmm. the people who are living under the pendulum of how this battle will go. 
and living with the thought, maybe before this night is out, 40 guys are going to rape me and smash my head against the wall. And there's nothing I can do about it. And I think it's, it's churlish and short-sighted and, and small to write off a show that made you think about that. I think so too. And I think that the show never lets you stop thinking about it. Yep. You know, one of my, one of my favorite moments is when the watch burns down Craster's keep after they rouse the mutineers and John says to Craster's wives and to the daughters who are also his wives, you know, you're safe now. And they're just like, fuck you. Yeah. You, you let this happen for decades. We're, we're, we're literally going to walk away into the dread consuming wilderness full of ice spirits rather than like take your hand. Mm -hmm. And it's so powerful. It's just like, they don't want this house where they have lived in the sense that you can call that a life. And they don't want to be taken somewhere else by men. It's huge. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I, I made that argument so many times that uh, it, it's a show that confronted the dehumanizing reality of violence in a way that almost no other show did. I mean, I think, and, and certainly when it comes to rape, there is nothing else. I yeah. think that talks about it as much or with as much insight and compassion. And I hate that I had to kind of come out as a victim of childhood sexual abuse to be able to make that argument and to be able to feel like I can discuss this at all with anybody because of just the, the virulence of the response against it. Yeah, this is uh, a situation we've both been in, and yeah. I, I fucking hate it too, Sean. Sucks, really sucks. <laughs> I mean, at at this point, it's I, I would say that it still hurts, but I don't I don't offer my credentials anymore. And what I feel now is just burning rage yeah. <laughs> that anyone would would dare to make that demand. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I agree. As you need to present your your you know your hand at the club to to say whether or not you've been stamped. And yeah, thank you. here here's my rape stamp. Would you let me in? I can drink. You know. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, and I I think there's um this weird infantilizing and patronizing response to the show that you touched on when you talked about how people like kind of white knighting for the younger uh, women in the cast who none of whom felt the need for it. Um, You know, and I think that carries over to the the debate such as it was about the final act with Daenerys raising King's Landing. Cause I think people were kind of white knighting for Daenerys and it's like, did you watch the show? Yes. Did you watch the show? And it's like, I've I've said this before. I'll say it here definitively. And that'll, that'll be, that'll be the log line. We'll put a bow on it. Of this, the first thing that Daenerys does when she has authority is burn a slave alive. Yep. She takes this woman who her husband's army raped, all of whose friends were slaughtered by that same army, and who was enslaved. 
along with the survivors of her village. And for the crime of killing her captor, she burns her alive. It's a direct line. It's not even, there's nothing complicated about it. No. You spend seven seasons after that moment listening to Daenerys say again and again and again, I will burn King's Landing to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) It really, you know, I'll tell you what, like, when I realized that what Daenerys did was what Frodo attempted to do at the end of the Lord of the Rings, I like, I I could have done, I could have run a victory lap. I was like, I, I just thought to myself, I fucking got all you motherfuckers. Like, the only difference between what she does at the end of Game of Thrones and what Frodo fucking Baggins does at the end of the Lord of the Rings is that there's no golem to toss her off the dragon. Yeah. That's it. You know, had Frodo had his way and had he had the power to actually seize the ring and use it for whatever purpose, like who knows what the fuck he would have done. It wouldn't have been pretty because that's the whole point. That's the whole point. You cannot carry this thing. You cannot no. possess a monarch's power, which the show so effectively symbolizes with the dragons. I mean, you know, people people make light of them, but a dragon is a powerful symbol in in the canon of fantasy as part of Western literature. Yeah, it's something that is associated with kingship through you know King Arthur and the vision of the white and red dragons, and that is associated with grandeur and with the fading away of an older, more dangerous, more magical world. To my mind, nothing has really used them like Game of Thrones used them to create this icon of beauty and ferocity and total unaccountable slaughter. Yeah. And I, I, um, I'm rereading the Earthsea series by Ursula K. Le Guin. And one of the things established early on, it's like, you know, one of the coolest things to be in this society is a dragon Lord. And someone asked the main character, what's a dragon Lord. He's like, it's a person dragons will talk to. Yeah. You know, like dragons are held in such high esteem and they just mean so much. They're like the fantasy creature, right? And to utilize that as a kind of metaphor for war and and what war does to human bodies, like that's a constant theme in everything Martin has written about dragons. Like if, if you've read Fire and Blood, like and 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 everything he's written about the dance of the dragons. I have. Yeah. The like how can you Wait, if the that whole- didn't exist and you read it and you liked it and then you watch the bells and are like no I don't like this I don't understand you I just don't understand not to sound like Larry Cotton from Hellraiser but like <laughs> I just don't understand you uh- <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me no it and it I mean the reality is that it just doesn't make sense um, the whole point of uh Blood of the Dragon and, and or Fire and Blood and his whole recounting of the Dance of Dragons is that when you allow a personality to express itself in such outsized means, 
the result is invariably grotesque. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot give a human being a flying Godzilla and be like, good will probably come of this. Yeah. I mean, in the dance, it's so like, it's they're the two guys, uh, Ulf the White, right? And uh, I forget the other one, Hard Hugh Hammer, who yeah. are like, um, you know, who just, they have a little bit of Targaryen blood in them, so they're able to ride dragons. And they turn out to be huge pieces of shit. Yep. And it, like, the point is that anyone, when given a dragon, could be a huge piece of shit. And what a disaster that might be. Right. It's it's almost like Martin looked at the history of handing people the reins of entire countries and armies and massive weapons and realized conclusively that the result is you get a deformity of human nature. Gee, it almost is like that, Gretchen. You're totally right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there is a direct line from that transcendent moment of fantasy in season one, which is also this grotesque, horrible inversion and mutilation of everything that Daenerys will claim to stand for from there on out. I, I, if you miss it, then you're, you're just not (laughs) smart enough to have this conversation with me. (laughs) (laughs) I like how much of this dialogue is becoming like, you can't sit with us. Yes. That's like, I mean, that's basically what you and me and Julia do whenever we're together. It's like, wow, it's very sad how stupid everyone who's not in this room is. It's very true. Only only our two children can sit with us. They're the only people who are allowed in the room. <laughs> to be fair, Frank and Helena are smarter than all of us. Yeah, they, they pretty much rule. There's no question about that. So where do we go from here? Let's go. Let's talk about the young Pope and the new Pope. Okay. shows that much like game of thrones came in for a lot of derision although most of it happened from people who hadn't seen it right and like, then there know, was the title right because the title is funny i get it yeah. the title's funny it's i think they're aware that the title is funny that's the thing right like you know when it when it was announced and everyone was like hollywood exec all right here's the thing there's a pope a suit guy all right exec but he's young damn i love it you know <laughs> it's a bit, you know it is funny and and uh sorrentino is a funny guy from, from what i've seen in many cases the we're talking exclusively about dramas right, right. Uh, and there's reasons for that that maybe we'll get into uh, as much as i love certain comedies but i or comedy shows maybe is a better term but in many cases, these dramas were like the funniest shows on television while they were airing. You know, right. the, Soprano- the Sopranos, Mad Men, Mad Men, and and the Young Pope as well. Like frequently hilarious, yeah. Which is a thing you can do 
when you are creating really well delineated characters instead of sort of the joke delivery machine that yeah. you know the sitcom runs on bingo exactly and and that's i've talked about this at length in many places but like right. that's the reason why it never makes sense to me to try and weigh them together because comedies are doing something very different and like I understand that people see all this wonderful character development and sitcoms and stuff. And I just don't get it. Cause it's like, they're, they're supposed to, they're like stand-up comedians that are stuck in a story. Like right. their job is to make you laugh. Like their job is to say the funniest thing. And, and I, you know, I say this as someone who loves Frasier and cheers and who watches and enjoys 30 rock for all it's, uh, questionable qualities um mm. jesus christ imagine watching a sitcom <laughs> yeah i uh yeah it's not my i mean we all i think have sitcoms that we love however dour and and mean-spirited we become in our dotage you know like <laughs> right. i love i love cheers i love the golden girls i love faulty towers i love you know um, the honeymooners, even yeah. uh, they're all kind of mean spirited, which I think they have their mean spirited shows, which I think they have in common. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a lot of maybe not the Golden Girls. There's a lot of sarcasm in the Golden Girls, but it's got the heart of gold too. Anyway, um, but yeah, we're really, I, you know, just to put that out there, we're talking about dramas. You're not going to hear us make an argument for The Simpsons or whatever. Right. It's it's not where our our bread is buttered. No. Um, it truly, is it just uh, it does not move me. No, yeah, because it's 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 just not it's not the same. It's Although not the I same did thing. hear uh, I did hear someone on TikTok earlier today in a pitch perfect Marge Simpson voice do the <laughs> "They massacred my boy" line from The Godfather. It fucking laid me out. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, sit- uh, sitcoms comedy in general as a genre is, is just, I don't find it necessarily um, nourishing or challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Not it in the does main. not compel me. No. Yeah. Like for me, yeah. Sitcoms aren't really challenging much for me that I've seen, you know, it's more, I, I gravitate more towards sketch comedy or, um, you know, I would, you know, I would say Monty Python's Flying Circus, Tim and Eric, right? Awesome show, great job. And then a lot of like the, the Wham City Adult Swim infomercials. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's really kind of my. That's the stuff that to me actually does push the boundaries. You know, and I think that's something to be said for Adult Swim. Just as a brief, brief, brief detour, like um, one of the I, most I, definitive pieces of modern pop culture. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I've seen people say that there really isn't an avant-garde for television beyond David Lynch and Adult Swim. And I think there is, but not much of one. Yeah. And I think and I think that that is a very fair accolade to lay at the feet of um, David Lynch and Mark Frost on one hand and, and the people who make Adult Swim on the other. I think that's completely legit. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the influence that Adult Swim's music alone 
has had on culture. Yeah. The, the existence of like that vaporwave aesthetic completely owed to adult swim and to, you know, people like Jason DeMarco. Yeah. This, um, um, just to plug a friend's podcast. Cause why not? Uh, my friend and Matthew Perpetua has a podcast called flux pod that you can find anywhere you find podcasts. And he recently got into that with Jason DeMarco, uh, who's the creative director of adult swim and, and kind of responsible for a lot of their musical initiatives. He's famously the guy who introduced LP and killer Mike to each other and formed run the jewels that way. Um, but you know, they go into how, uh, the whole lo-fi hip hop beats to study and chill out to thing um, came from adult swims, like interstitial titles. Yeah. But um, he was only introduced him through his daughter, who's a teenager and was actually using them to study. Yeah. And it's like, dad, we're, this, this seems like you would like it. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the young Pope. This is a show. I think that, that comes closer to being avant-garde than most of the other golden age of television shows. Very much so. Yeah. Um, because you know, there's a lot of like Cocteau and Fellini and, and older European directors going on here. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's not as radical as, as David Lynch, but it is extremely lively creatively um, and compositionally in a way that most television just isn't. I don't think that I don't think an episode went by where like my jaw didn't drop at the audacity of something that they did. Right. I mean, even the, the first five minutes of the pilot where they do like slapstick pratfalls and a slasher frame and like a funny zoom with a, a slide whistle sound and, you know, horror iconography and I mean, it's, it's just endless. It, it's, you see maybe 10, 12 distinct styles. It, it just tossed off like nothing. And like, to the extent that we're talking about what kind of TV we want, the reason we respond to the shows we respond to is like, yes, this is what I need. This is what I want. And I think in the young Pope's case, it is that that stylistic audacity that that just willingness to be weirder than it needs to be strictly speaking yes um that certainly that's what i'm responding to to me this is um the ethos that is is so important to me here is the young pope's willingness to look ridiculous in its attempt to touch something divine yeah you know this is this is like when the UFO shows up in the man who wasn't there, the Coen brothers movie um, or, or, or any, any transcendent moment like that, that really flirts with absurdity. And I think the young Pope knows that the only way you can touch God's face is to give up the idea of standing on solid ground. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, the way I've put it, it is a kind of uh, does for Catholicism what Starship Troopers does for fascism, which is yeah. kind of like if Catholicism were real, if it's unique blend of um, excess and self-pity and uh, spectacle and uh, intolerance were really the real deal, 
And also there's magic in the form of miracles. Right. Um, what would that look like? And, and it, it, would- it really makes you glad that Catholicism is, is not real, that it was invented for that show. Yes. <laughs> that's true. As a, as a very thoroughly elapsed Catholic, I concur. Um, but you know, but that's the, that's the, like what, what I'm trying to get at is I think it was hard for a lot of critics to wrap their minds around what the show was doing because it was, yes. um, it, it was unusual and it was, you just don't get a lot of shows that are operating on that kind of, you know, level. Right. I mean, it's the show that's in active conversation with Catholicism in the same way that Ken Russell was when he, a practicing Catholic, made the Devils. I was going to, I mean, the Devils is, I think, maybe the thing I think of the most when I think of the young Pope. Just, yeah. You know, the zoom ins on these odd looking faces and in, in clerical uh, garb. Uh, that's so the Devils. Yeah, it really is. Um, and the, and there's a, a similar showiness and melodrama too, mm-hmm. and and you know these outsized sets and although in uh, in Sorrentino's case it's more that they're exaggerated through camera work or lighting, right? That's true. You know, there 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 are touches like the giant neon cross, but in general he he stays pretty close to what the Vatican actually looks like. Whereas in the Devils you have a convent that has been purposefully made to look like a public toilet yeah which is fucking great yeah it's much more expressionist uh that's true but yeah you know like you said it's a movie or sorry a show that begins at the position that everything catholicism claims is real which is a very fascinating place to start a show because it's you know it's a point of view that most catholics i think don't even hold Right. And that's uh, what it, that's what it, you know, explicitly addresses in, right. in large part, you know, Lenny Bellardo, who's the, the character, the young Pope played by Jude Law, um, is extremely conservative. It kind of also plays that against his, his movie star charisma, you know? Yeah, it does. Like he, he is, he actually says, I'm extremely handsome. And he is. He is, he is. Astonishingly handsome. Extremely handsome man. So then it becomes weird that he's as conservative as he is. Right, somehow. because we're conditioned to expect a person's physical body to reflect their character, which of, of course is, you know, total nonsense. Like if you've seen a Marvel movie, for right. example, you know, you're just you're just stuffed to the gills with moral exemplars played by handsome guys named Chris. <laughs> yeah. And um. Yeah, the young Pope works uses its own beauty kind of against itself in a way. It's, yeah, it um, does very artfully. Maybe that that's a real common theme that I'm because I'm looking over at my list of shows that I want to talk about, and a lot of them are very pretty shows about very dark stuff. Like I think Boardwalk Empire is just one of the most visually sumptuous things I've ever seen. Oh my god, it's so good to look at. so good i think about that 
second floor office that I think is in season two or three so often because mm-hmm. it's just that like gorgeously symmetrical room that is so full of shadows and when the light comes in through the glass of that big circular window, it has this really kind of incredible buttery quality. I mean, it's just an amazing show. Yeah. And it was a show I've, I've written about this, uh, I think for Vulture that it was a show that for any number of reasons was overlooked. Yeah. It aired at the same time as Mad Men and, and both Aiden and Mad Men had writers who had worked on the final seasons of The Sopranos. Right. It aired at the same time as Breaking Bad, which was a much more fast-paced and engaging show about crime that also began with the letter B. <laughs> it, it, um, it aired against Game of Thrones, which I think just eclipsed everything else on television. There's really not, not much more to be said about that. Right. Although they do have a lot of common themes. People compared it to The Sopranos because, again, Terrence Winter is the creator of Boardwalk Empire worked on the Sopranos people compared it to Deadwood because it was about community in a way and, and crimes within the context of a community. So I get why people didn't rate it. Well, no, I don't. I, I get why people didn't pay attention to it. Having paid attention to it, I rank it at or above basically all those other shows Yes, because of the skill and uh, ambition of the imagery and how it looked. And again, how it sounded, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. The, the voices on that show, I mean, you have Jack Huston with that, that like scarred gravelly cough of a voice. And you've mm-hmm. got Bobby Cannavale who's, you know, spitting in this like thick New York accent and Steve Buscemi, who always sounds like he's complaining about how you pressed his slacks wrong and now they're pinching his balls. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think all the time about the definitive opening sex scenes in all these different shows. And in Boardwalk Empire, it's Paz de la Huerta taking up three quarters of the frame, moaning, ride him cowboy over and over. And, Steve Buscemi's head up in the fourth quarter whining. That's very distracting. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible. Yeah. Buscemi, uh, this I remember very distinctly. People felt Buscemi was miscast because he wasn't charismatic. And it's like, that's. Did you miss the point any more completely? Exactly. Like I get why people were like, well, compared to Brian Cranston and John Hamm, and James Gandolfini, you know, he's not the one who knocks. But that's the point of the show. Right, he's an accountant. Uh, right. The point of the show, kind of of necessity, by the way, it blended reality and fiction. You know, there were real mobsters in it. Al Capone and Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky and Arnold Rothstein. And then there were fake ones, like Michael Pitt's character. And then there were semi-fake ones, like Steve Buscemi's character, who is sort of based on a real guy the real guy was like physically completely different and had a different, you know, his life wound up going in a different direction. Right. Um, and they, they, they sort of don't, they don't include like the definitive elements of that guy's contribution to organized right, crime. Right. Like that guy famously beat up Al Capone right. and Steve Buscemi's character was not about to beat up Al Capone. No. Um, so point is though, um, that, 
you know, since it is partially based in reality and it's, it, it doesn't wind up being sort of reality breaking the way certain things are, you're in glorious bastards and so on. It had to be about why do you, why have you heard of Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano and Al Capone, but not Jimmy Darmody and Nucky Thompson right. and these other, these, these fictional characters. It, so it becomes about like people who can't hack it. Yeah. And I, I, I think other than men who are sad about how good they are at killing, I think <laughs> my favorite genre is people who can't hack it. I love that. And love I, I mean, here's another show. And, and well, it doesn't have the breadth that game of Thrones had or the, the specificity or I mean the, the sort of raw quality. Here's a show that is built entirely around rape mm-hmm. and it's central moral conflict is so painful and so like untouchably white hot that eventually it, it just burns through the whole substance of the show and that's it. That's what I love about it. I yeah. It's astonishing. And I made that, I made that case as strongly as I could because particularly in the aftermath of the finale of Breaking Bad, which weirdly for the first time in the history of the show gave Walt White a pass. Right. (laughs) Baffling. To to this day, it, it, it blows my mind. To have this this guy who had been so firmly and thoroughly established as a piece of shit who could rationalize himself into doing literally anything out of, out of just bottomless venal vanity and good old fashioned American entitlement. You know, he's, he's this nebbish, this, this thwarted man who lives this sort of bitter half awake life and the second he realizes that he can put his finger on the trigger and people will listen to him, the monster's out. Yeah. And and it's it's more a matter of who who was this guy and by extension, what are disempowered men throughout the country living in this ground down world that they're supposed to be the kings of. And then suddenly he goes away to a cabin and sits for, you know, a couple of months. And he has reformed his entire worldview and, and he has this, this self insight and it, it just all rings incredibly false. Yeah. This is a man whose moral turpitude basically tore open the sky. Yeah. In terms of the plane crash episode, yeah. a guy who is so repellent that not only his wife, but the camera recoiled from him in horror when he realizes that he has no easy way out of the dilemma he's gotten into and he Holy shit, becomes when hysterical. He's in the crawl space. Yeah. In the crawl space. Exactly. The camera is so repelled by him that it does the impossible and floats through the ceiling of this house. Yeah. Still locked on him. It's, it incredible. Was a sh- it's incredible. It's a show that got Walter White that had his fucking number and never let anyone forget about it until the last episode. And then 
they turn around and make Better Call Saul. Which has all the moral acuity of Breaking Bad at its best, with virtually none of the sensational stuff. Which, don't get me wrong, I loved about Breaking Bad. Right. Like, the the two-episode storyline where he's kind of in a kill-or-be-killed cat-and-mouse thing with Gus Fring Ooh. at the end of season four, like, that is the most, that probably is the most gripping television I've ever seen in terms of my physical reaction to it. Yeah, I remember the first time that I watched Ozymandias, the, uh, I think it's the Antipenultimate episode, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, they were, yes, yes, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so tense, it will give you a fucking stomachache. Yep. Um, really great, great thriller stuff. I prefer Better Call Saul. Um, yeah, I think I do too. And I, I think at this point, I think that I have like a substantive argument behind why I prefer it. And I actually think it's a better, more interesting show. Breaking Bad is fantastic television until its final episode where it, it just sort of inexplicably flames out. It like, does what people... A, it's such a bizarre, unforced error. Yeah, it does what people accused Game of Thrones doing. Right, exactly, exactly. It sort of you know slaps Walt on the back and says, well, yeah, there was good in him too. <laughs> you know, like, uh, this guy hemmed and hawed and on the other handed his way through murdering a child. But hey, let's watch him leave his fortune to his son. Oh. Point being, I suppose, that, break, that Boardwalk Empire does not do that. No, no. It does the exact opposite. You know, you, you have this central, this central pain and trauma that just sort of throbs through the whole show. And it gets more and more intense as you go, even as the people involved in it start to drop away. Until finally, by the end, he's surfacing in and out of the past and reliving this thing that he did, this unforgivable life ruining thing. And for nothing, he had nothing. He had no family. He had no happiness. He had, he, he had a completely empty life and it's the end is it just folds up in on itself. And then, and that's it. Oh, it's, it's incredible. It really is so good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a good show. The the result of that kind of behavior, and this feels almost trite to say, but I guess it needs to be said, is nothingness. The Sopranos got it, and Boardwalk Empire absolutely gets it. I just think it's. I mean, it's. I sound whiny, but I just think it's unfair that it's that it is. The Sopranos is essentially used against it. Like, oh, we've already seen a gangster thing from HBO. Or we've already <laughs> seen a gangster thing from Terrence Winter. We don't need to see another thing. Like, you actually yeah, you do. do. You do yeah. need to see another thing like this. Like, imagine The Sopranos if the central conflict was that Tony had pimped Meadow out to someone. Right. You know, like, that's a completely different show. I think that, that people... I mean, I know for a fact that both lay and professional critics 
will sometimes be so lazy as to look at a poster and then formulate an entire response. But I feel like that's a lot of what goes on with Boardwalk Empire, that people are, are, they look at the fashion, they look at the accents, and they're like, well, I've already seen this. And I just don't think that's a viewpoint that can plausibly survive contact with the show, which is brilliant. Yeah. I agree. I never understood, like, it was just people were over it for some reason. Uh, It blew my mind. And uh, I want to point out that it also, among all the other things it has going for it, Includes my favorite line of dialogue from anything. You and I agree completely on this. It is the single best line of dialogue. Yeah, um, which is Richard Harrow, the uh, severely disfigured World War One veteran who's turned into uh, basically a remorseless killing machine. He turns down the offer of a book to read while he's in a waiting room. And he, he explains it thusly. He says, it occurred to me, the premise of fiction is that we have some sort of connection with each other, but we don't. Yeah. It's a line that I still think about just out of the blue. And, and it, I don't know, feels like that line put a hole in me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's to me, the rough equivalent is when major Garland Briggs is oh, being God. held captive in this, the, the flawed, but still really fascinating second season of twin peaks and is asked what his greatest fear is. And he says that love is not enough. That love is not enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's Fuck. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm tearing up a little. Yeah. Uh, that moment and his monologue about seeing his son in the white lodge. Mm-hmm. Whew. I mean, I, I don't know how you get through that dry eyed. I, I don't. That's how. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, God, I love Twin Peaks. Yeah, me too. Oh, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. And Twin Twin Peaks, I think, has an understanding of horror that is shared by only a, a very small, small percentage of great horror, which is that for something to really put its fingers under your ribs and pull you have to make explicit what is beautiful and what can be lost and what is irreparably damaged. And Twin Peaks gives you that. It gives you things that are so beautiful. You don't even want to touch them. Yeah. You know, I think about, Oh man, I'm, I'm going to cry here. <laughs> um, I think about Harry Dean Stanton kneeling in the road with that kid who's been run over and just his, his expression as he stares up at the sky. God, what a show. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Boardwalk Empire. It's a, it's an unbelievably good show. I think about, uh, I think about so much from that show all the time. Steven Root's character is so fucking funny. Mm-hmm. I think about, ugh, I think about Bobby Cannavale on that show near constantly what the fuck is life it's not personal yes another great all-timer line yes oh or the image of him stepping into the hall in that collar naked with the gun in his hand yes oh god damn and you know it's it's uh Sometimes it's nice when television just hands you a whole plate of eclairs and and gives you (laughs) Gretchen Maul strangling him. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> um, God bless. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's something that I feel really strongly about is that there's not enough sex in the golden age of TV and that when there is, it's often not very interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you, I mean, there's some horny shows, I think. Yeah, in the, the American in the really horny show. The Americans turned out to be extremely horny. Um, so horny, the leads got married. God, that rules. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty hot. Like, <laughs> oh, you're fucking miserable spies, sixty nine on television, and your fake daughter saw, and then you got married. <laughs> and I, I think, I think Mad Men was a pretty horny show. I mean, I think uh, in terms of TV sex scenes, the part after their big party oh, where Megan is cleaning yeah. up her underwear and calls Don old and says he can only watch, like, woo! Yeah. That's, that, that, gets a, that gets a Ric Flair woo from me. <laughs> that part is incredible. Yep. And I don't know. I mean, some other, I'm trying to think, like, this is one area where I think that Game of Thrones frequently fell short. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of like actually hot sex on Game of Thrones. There's Missandei and Grey Worm have a good sex scene. That was good. That's a really beautiful sex scene. I liked the, the part where Daenerys gets out of the tub um, in front of Dario Naharis. Right, and somehow manages to make it sound like "fuck you." Yeah, that's yeah. baller. That's like that's that's a baller move. Yeah, it rules. Um, um, oh, there's some good, good Jamie Cersei sex. That's true, and I I like John Daenerys too. Yeah. I, oh, John and John and Egret was my favorite though. That was good shit. You know what? There was a lot of good fucking on Game of Thrones. It's just that there was also a lot of really unmemorable, boring fucking. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. The Sopranos has a good amount of hot sex and nothing that's like awful to watch that isn't you know meant to be. <laughs> right. Right. I think a lot about Tony and Gloria and the reptile house at the Brooklyn Zoo. Whew. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the young Pope is, is quite horny. The new Pope might be hornier. Yes, I would say the new Pope is hornier. Yeah, yeah the new Pope is definitely hornier. Yeah. And that's that's horny in a way that I, I can really get into. Like, just people trying all these different ways of expressing their extreme ridiculous horniness. One thing I really loved about the new Pope is that the Vatican PR woman, 
her sexual relationship with husband is like super hot. Yeah. But he's also like grotesquely unfaithful and right. a sex criminal. <laughs> right. And disgusting piece of shit in every way. <laughs> right. Right. And it's like, again, they don't go the easy route with that. They don't let right. you off the hook, you know? There's, there's a scene where they're using just one crayon. I don't know. It just, it just, it just does more than it needs to. Yes, it does. That's really a through line for me with a lot of, maybe that's the best way to describe the kind of television I like, like, cause you can, you can apply it in a lot of different ways. Like you can apply it in a Twin Peaks way and say like, Oh, we're going to get an avant-garde film about the first atomic explosion in the middle of your show about Dougie Jones. But I also think it can apply to something like Halt and Catch Fire. Again, I've told this a million times, but Halt and Catch Fire, I think, started very roughly. Yep. It was an extremely derivative knockoff of Mad Men. It was written by two guys who were only hoping to get in a writer's room and had no intention of actually making the show. Right. And the show somehow got greenlit and they had to learn on the fly. So the first season is full of a lot of unnecessarily ginned up conflict and it's kind of boring. Everyone's an asshole to each other. But you get to the end of the first season. And these four uh, main characters, really, I guess it's just three at this point, have worked together to create a very cool new personal computer. But they discover that a rival has knocked it off for much cheaper. And they have a choice. They can retain all the hardware that makes their user interface like fun and cool and creative and new, but also just eats up a lot of physical space. Or... They can get rid of all that, have a have a more boring, less interesting, less original user interface for their computer, but it's lighter and cheaper. Mm-hmm. And it would therefore probably be more likely to succeed. And everyone who works for these people would still be able to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. Except for the person who designed the super creative user interface. That's the other alternative. And I, I sat there and I'm like, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. I, and most every show that we're talking about and every canonical show is about shades of gray. Right? right. And it's about how no one's fully good. No one's fully evil. People make choices, the consequences of those choices. Usually, however, what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do is crystal clear mm-hmm. in all of these cases. And I, I include the Sopranos. Like there's really never any doubt what the, your, what you ought to do and what you ought really? not to do. No, don't murder that teenager. <laughs> right, right, right. That's um, bad. <laughs> yeah. And this was the first time where it's like, there's no, there's really not a right or wrong answer. It's just how you personally prioritize things. Someone's going to get hurt. It's unavoidable. Right. Blew my fucking mind. I'd never seen anything like that on television, ever. And then, uh, and then it, it just crystallizes and it becomes this incredible show that gets better and better and better and better until the moment it ends. Yep. The trajectory is unreal. Unreal yeah. for that show. <laughs> the curve is just like 
you know, sort of bumpy flat line occasionally, and then just a straight line up. It's crazy. It the really- only thing I've ever seen that was wilder than that is uh, the first season of Billions is just actively bad. I hated watching it. Me too. then the second season of billions is immediately very fun and engaging. Yeah, it happened. It's it's like, it doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Somehow people figure it out. I don't know. And I've had the creators of billions be like, you know, having now that you like it, like, what do you think of the first season? And I'm still like, I don't like it. I'm sorry. (laughs) sorry. There's, there's some good stuff like in the, like the, the third or fourth act. Um, sure, where everything comes together around the funeral and stuff. Right, right. Um, it's a good episode. Yeah, it's a it's a good episode. That's what it is. And I think um, I also think the leftovers is kind of in the same boat. Yep. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. Everybody is worrying about where they're gonna go when the whole thing. Again, you know, it's 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 doing something really affecting by the time the first season ends, but the first season is bumpy. Yeah. It has one of my least favorite episodes of television of all time. Oh, the one the one with uh where Doctor Who goes to the casino. Spotlight episode on Doctor Who as he goes to the casino. Exactly. I also hate that episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dog shit. Um, which is nuts because the follow-up that mirrors it and recreates it is incredible. <laughs> yes. The third season thing when they're on the, the, the orgy boat. That's the guy I was telling Talk you about. about. <laughs> <laughs> when, when real actor Richard Burton gets eaten by a lion. <laughs> God, oh my God, it was so, so good. And like, you know, Mad Men and The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire and The Leftovers are our shows about death. They are steeped in death. Everyone is dying. Everyone is thinking about death constantly. They are full of absence and funerals and murder. And it's just extremely prevalent. But where I think The Leftovers really stands apart is that it just never ever gives you any resolution yeah there's just nothing there's just this ache yeah it, it is a show about an, about ab, an unresolvable absence right um you know as much as like i think tonally it has a lot in common this is maybe sound weird uh with the godfather part two i completely agree you know you have this this structuring absence in the form of them not having marlon brando for the sequel and it really becomes about that absence. And, but in the leftovers case, the absence is 5% of the world's population or something like that. I think it's two and a half. It's two and a half. It's um, very small. Yeah. It's like COVID numbers practically. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, sorry. It got dark a little bit. Um, no, it's, 
certainly relevant. But it makes sense because these characters, they don't resolve, they don't, they never cohere, they never resolve. It always feels like they're like, anytime they're in any kind of state of equilibrium, it's just because they're waiting for the next shoe to drop. Right. And everything. And here's, here's another, um, another line that I think of all the time. And one of the first really good episodes of the show is when in the first season, Nora, who's played by Carrie Coon, goes to New York for a conference. And her character is, is really defined by the trauma that her entire family against all odds disappeared on, on the day of the departure when, you know, 2.5% of the world's population vanished inexplicably. Um, and she's just constantly being hounded and badgered by people who are trying to sympathize with her or get her story or, you know, figure out in some um, vicarious way how to move on. And finally someone pushes her too far and, and asks her what's next for her. And she says, what's next? What's next? Nothing is fucking next. Nothing. It's a God tier performance. It's incredible. It's so incredible. It's, you know, again, it's, it's like in boardwalk empire, you come up against this emptiness that there is no getting past. It's just, it's just a wound. Yeah. And I get why that's not necessarily appealing to everybody. Sure. The argument I would make for the leftovers is that like, it's, it's from Damon Lindelof who brought you Watchmen. Um, but it's smart. It's not stupid. <laughs> right. all, all the all the things that were great about Watchmen, because I think there was a lot in Watchmen to recommend it, unfortunately. The first half of Watchmen, I would say I really like. Yeah. I mean, that kind of berserk head trauma surrealism, yeah. where you just feel like you're getting constantly punched in the face by some random shit that eventually they make sense of. It's not just like throwing shit at the wall. There's a rhyme and a reason to it. But like, imagine that strength of imagery and that willingness to be inexplicable and weird in the service of something that wasn't about like how good hearted cops are. Um, (laughs) Imagine that, but better. That's what you get in the leftovers. It's the same guy really working with the same, you know, it has much more in common imagistically with Watchmen than it does with lost, which is his previous show, which I also like, you know, I like lost. I I would say that lost's, cultural impact is ineradicable mm-hmm. and that I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But you know, leftovers does both those shows. Just, it's just better. It blows them away. Yeah, it, it, it does. It does. And in, in terms of like weirdness shit, the episodes that are set in whatever you want to call that, that alternate waiting room death universe are so incredible. Yeah. I mean, really it's, it's just like you said it, it's head trauma. You just, he puts your head in the door and slams it over and over and over again. And then somehow it makes sense. Again, audacity is something I think I really appreciate in television because it's it's a, it's a medium in which it's very easy just to do the same thing because it's iterative. You know, it's not a movie where it stands on itself. You're doing episode after episode after episode, even if you're a relatively short thing. Um, right, like Catch Fire, four seasons. Yeah. What is it, like 12 episodes a season? 
Mm. Or in a lot of, I think a lot of my favorite shows after the initial sort of wave and a half of shows, they tend to be anthologies or they tend to be one and done things, you know, that is a great segue to get us into talking about the terror. Yes. Yes. first season of the terror which is based on a dan simmons book that i think we both find very interesting but deeply flawed right it's like kind of weird and sexist and very 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 racist and also just has a lot of structural faults yeah it makes a mess of the big reveal of the supernatural nature of the antagonist yeah right and it fixes all of them and creates this fucking perfect black diamond of of desolation it's unbelievable like it's a show that i i truly cannot believe exists i think i have rewatched it upwards of five times now and i have never once felt anything less than totally enthralled it's almost surgical in the way it extracts the 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 weaker aspects of the source novel and improves on it in every way. Yep. That is, I mean, it's not just rare, it's singular. In my experience with, with literary adaptations on television, you know, like I'm, I'm currently watching the new version of the stand and, you know, there's some things I like about it, but kind of a mess. Yeah. That's what I hear. A well-intentioned mess. I think they were trying for something and they just, it just didn't work out. I have a lot of respect for that. Sure. Yeah. I have more respect for the terror. <laughs> sure, because the terror fucking works. Yes. And it it goes gangbusters. I mean, that's as close to a perfect season of television as I think exists. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I like looking at my little personal list, like I have it, there's four in a row. There's two old to die young. This is the terror of season one. This American Crime Story, which is The People versus O.J. Simpson, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, which had two different showrunners, two different, well, not two different writers, completely different crew behind them, except for Ryan Murphy. And then Channel Zero and The Act. The Act, I see, is sort of Channel Zero season five. You know, I have not finished watching The Act. Did you, was it because you didn't, you disliked it or? No, 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 no. I found it very compelling. I think I stopped it, episode five or six. I don't remember why. I should finish it. I think it's very good. Because to me, it, it feels like it could be a, a fifth part of that horror anthology. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's kind of fascinating that, that there are shows that don't need that sort of ramping up period that Billions or Amer- The Americans or The Leftovers had or Halton Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of television that comes right out of the gate swinging. Um, yeah. And like you said, there have been a lot of good anthology series in the past decade. Fargo is very, very good. Channel Zero was incredible. Yeah.
Channel Zero made me mad at myself for not getting into it sooner. Yep, me too. I, I really, I wish I had been on that bus from the jump. Yeah. That's, uh, the sc- that's the scariest shit. Oh my god. Man. The, uh, the first episode of the second season of Channel Zero is the scariest episode of television. <sighs> when they go into that go fucking into the, house. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <sighs> yeah, terrifying, terrifying show. And it just maintained a solid level of quality throughout. Like Right. And it's you know, it's difficult to make a consistently frightening television show. Very, very difficult. To the point where a lot of television horror doesn't doesn't even really attempt it. You know, Hannibal was never about being scary. Yeah. It was about being true. kind of like artistically disgusting, which to be fair, I'm very into. <laughs> yeah, that that works for me. Yeah. But it's not it's not scaring you. Yeah, that I mean I still it's it's funny because I really do focus on fear when it comes to horror. Like I'm I'm very resistant to the idea that like, oh well it doesn't need to be scary to be good. And I'm kind of like, well yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> but you know, in, in Hannibal's case, like it was so Baroque and disgusting. Yeah. That like it it still kinda clicked my it still kinda hit my horror buttons. You know, it's like absolutely. I mean, Hannibal is is just like, what if a beautiful man whose face is also a shark's face took you by the hand and walked you through his garden of deformed corpses? Like, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm into it. <laughs> that sounds like a really nice way to spend a night. That's that's a show that I think falls apart. Again, sort of primarily in its last episode, but not entirely. Yeah, that's true. Brian Fuller got high in his own supply. Yeah, that good God. I cannot imagine saying okay to that Susie Sue song. <laughs> and I love Susie Sue. Yes. Who doesn't? Right. But I just, know. you blew it. Capiche? <laughs> yeah, it, it is, it's unfortunate. Because I really did like that show. I recently rewatched it with someone who I won't name, who really turned out to hate it. And it kind of got me seeing it with a more jaundiced eye, which is sort of too bad, I guess, because I really dug it when I when I first saw it. But I was just I was just I was just so stunned that something so unbelievably disgusting could have aired on the fucking Peacock network. Oh, it's it's bananas. The part where Mason Verger feeds chunks of his own face to dogs on screen. Bullets passing through skulls in slow motion, like Right. Brought to you by the people who I guess what did like Parks Park and Rec. Rec. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. I couldn't like how could I not love the show on, on like right. on, on just a very like Again, it's the audacity of it. I would I would say that even though I think ultimately it doesn't hang together and has a lot of episodes that are sort of muddled quality, it's also incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And has a gorgeous score and actors who are extremely good to look at. 
It has like that those crazy fractal sex scenes. It's a pretty horny show. It's a pretty horny show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, they're they're on NBC, so there's only so much they can do, but they make it work within that range. <laughs> Jesus. I think about uh Mason Verger saying, Are you a spitter or a quitter all the time? <laughs> <laughs> again, same network as 30 Rock. Yep. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, that's. I think that shows a real success as just an aesthetic pleasure. On the, on the flip side of that, I think I would place the affair. I was screaming into the canyon at the moment of my death. The echo I created, I lasted my last breath. My voice, it made an avalanche and buried a man I never knew. And when he died, his widow bride met to daddy, and they made you. I have only one thing to do, and that's be the way that I am, and then sink back into the ocean. I have only one thing to do, and that's be the way that I am, and then sink back into the ocean. I think, you know, I think as time went on, it got a little shakier, it got a little wobblier. You know, maybe its reach exceeded its grasp, and there was obviously, it turned out to be like a lot of backstage conflict which is a sucks to hear about because I think whereas Hannibal's like saving grace is just the audacity of its imagery and how beautiful and, and terrible it was. I think the first couple of, or three seasons of the affair dug into stuff about class and about actual real existing communities and gender expectations and how one becomes a good man or one becomes a good woman. The unspoken rules and regulations of heterosexual adulthood. Yeah. All of it. Like, like in every vector. Um, It is a very, very adult show in a way that few things are. Yeah. I never saw anything like it. You know, I mean, just, I thought it handled it all with such like acuity and sensitivity to, to detail and nuance. Oh man. I, uh, Really, really blew me away and, and got me, you know, past a lot of its later faults, I would say. Yeah, it, it does kind of get into this sort of sensational, exceptional storytelling that is a lot less interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think basically the, the murder stuff is in the, the last few seasons is as close to a death blow as it ever suffers. Yeah, that's true. But even even then. You know, the writing remains mostly exceptional. Yeah. There's a lot of great performances on that show. The actor plays uh, Bruce Butler, the grandfather. I can't remember his name right now. He's also on The Wire. John uh, Dolman, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He he does just great, complicated work with a very, very small part. Yeah. It was another show where, like, you kind of never knew which which background character was going to come back to be a big deal. Right. That's a, that's a quality I find deeply appealing is like a show that operates under the assumption that everyone in it is a full and complex human being and gives them just enough texture that if you dive into them, it'll feel right. Right. That's, that's definitely something that sets shows apart for me. You know, Breaking Bad doesn't have that. And I think that's by design. It's a mud, it's a tight, tight show. Right. But it does rob it of a certain kind of richness 
it's it's a much flatter show than like the sopranos yeah it's not an open world show right if if that makes it's a platformer right what's what's going on is what's right in front of you yeah yeah and you know what walt's lawyer's maladjusted son is thinking about in his room is not going to be important to the plot (laughs) (laughs) exactly you're not going to get Vito going to new hampshire and breaking bad my beloved johnny cake storyline you know i fucking i love that storyline which is i'm just kicked all up and down the curb by people of all stripes i've seen gay critics who hate it and i've seen older more established straight critics who who think it's just sort of fluffy and insubstantial i love it i mean you take this guy who is so selfish and greedy and conniving and you show him in such a vulnerable light and then it comes around and you realize you're just looking at a different facet of what a piece of shit he is and it's still heartbreaking fuck yeah it's really remarkable television also uh, like i grew up in new hampshire and before i transitioned i spent a lot of time as a handyman and that scene where he's like forcing himself not to check his watch because he hates being at work so much that he wants the delight of looking and seeing that the day is half over. That's the most relatable thing I've ever seen on television. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a good place to wrap up. I I think it is. Yeah. This has been really interesting. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad we got to do it. Me too. I, you know, I've been looking forward to this. I'm glad. I've been looking forward to it too. And I think it really kind of helped coalesce my thoughts about a lot of these shows that we talked about. Yeah, same. And, you know, we, we didn't find time to get to everything or talk about where we differ, which is honestly such a thin band as to be like not super worth discussing. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think like the most dramatic difference of opinion we've ever had was about the new Suspiria movie. Yeah, I guess so. Which you think is good and I think is only kind of good. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of scintillating conflict that you'll find when when Collins and Felker Martin clash. (laughs) (laughs) When the hive mind makes war against itself. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, Sean. It was really nice to be back on Blah. I was so happy to have you. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. And as always, please check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash boyleatheraudiohour. There's all kinds of extra bonus articles and podcasts and all kinds of stuff that you'll dig if you dig this at all. And uh, yeah, again, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.